Bolt your windows. Lock your doors. Check your closets. Look under your bed. And then, prepare yourself. For it's another episode of Dark Night of the Podcast. Whoa! Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and all in between. Welcome to another episode of Dark Night of the Podcast. And I'm thrilled and excited to say that it's it's Tawny Katane week here at Dark Night of the Podcast. And I've been counting down. I've been counting down for Tawny Katane week because I can't get enough of her with that big red hair and all those white steak music videos she used to be in. And parts of this movie we're reviewing today feel kind of like it's a white steak music video made just for Tawny Katane. Troy, when you hear Tawny Katane, what comes to mind? Here I go again on my own. And her dancing and shaking her ass all over the hood of that car in the video. We got to say, we, we got to say rest in peace though, because she did pass away in 2021. So I know, yeah. I know we lost a good one. We, did. we lost a good one. Um, I, I got to say that what comes to mind for me more than anything is that season of the surreal life that she was on with Florence Henderson <laughs> and Sma- and the lead singer of Smash Mouth, and they filmed a music video for Smash Mouth. Like that was one of the episodes, and I have this distinct memory of Tawny Katane. The only vehicle that they could get for her, I guess, was a like a um like a Volkswagen Bug. <laughs> um, and I have this vivid memory of Tawny Katane dancing on the hood of this Volkswagen Bug in like a hotel like a motel parking lot. Like it was just very sad, <laughs> but um, I took great joy out of, of Tawny Katane and, and the few contributions she did offer to pop culture. Uh, they are very memorable. And I, I feel which board kind of falls under that too. Memorable in its own way. Would you agree? Yeah, I mean, I feel like this was given specifically to her to be like her star vehicle to, to launch maybe an acting career that just never came to fruition as expected, which, you know, she's, she's fine in this film. The camera loves her. She's very, uh, photogenic, uh, looks great on camera. Her acting, not terrible. I mean, we've seen worse. I think when she has some of her like more bigger dramatic moments, she's maybe, um, a little greener than the moments that are more like natural, like her, like upbeat, kind of cheerful, positive, like the moments that she, I think seems the most natural and comfortable is when Linda, her character, Linda is uh, expressing like joy or wide eyed wonder or excitement. Uh, She's actually quite likable in those moments. And I think she makes for a, a fairly engaging uh, female lead, if you will. Yeah, so folks, if you haven't figured it out with Tawny Katane Week, we are discussing 1986's <laughs> Witch Board, suggested to us by this is our final listener pick, Roger. We've made it through. We've made it through. Uh, so we got to thank Julie Brock, one of our patrons from the beginning. Also, yes. we have to mention that she has been very supportive. She chose this title for us. We originally were going to do Near Dark. I think we mentioned that at the end of our last episode, but unfortunately. 
we had to choose a different film due to streaming limitations with Near Dark. So I am ecstatic to uh, have been able to watch Witchboard again. So thank you, Julie, for coming through and giving us an alternative suggestion. Uh, I had not seen this film for years. I mean, I I saw this film probably back in the 80s. And I there's two specific scenes that I do remember from this film. But rewatching it, you know, was like a whole new experience because I just did not remember the ending. I did not remember a lot of it. So it was an experience. So thank you, Julie. We are covering, like I said, Witchboard. Ironically enough, directed by Kevin Tenney, who gave us I mean, the far superior and the far more memorable Night of the Demons. Oh, and you you see it there, for sure. There are some moments that feel very Night of the Demons. The perspective shots, uh, like the demonic uh, POV, if you will, which also has kind of some Evil Dead vibes. But when I saw that, it, I was like, oh, this harkens right to like that same technique used in Night of the Demons. So you definitely pick up on it. But I do appreciate that overall and like, tone and just like the kind of story that's trying to be told here um i wouldn't say it feels like night of the demons this very much feels like its own thing it does it's it's much it's much less fantastical than night of the demons it's more grounded i think and i mean that was that was the impression i got from the from the opening of the film you know night of the demons has one of the most and we've talked about it one of the most memorable i think opening credit sequences of any horror film to come out of the 80s wouldn't you agree Yes, yes. Okay, this one does not. I mean, this one is just... So right away, it's kind of setting that tone um, of being way more uh, grounded in, in reality. The The opening credits of this film are just very just bland. It's just white text on a screen as we kind of zoom in on the close-up of this. What I assume... I, it's kind of confusing. At some points, it seems like it's a house, right? Yeah. But then it's supposed to be a, an apartment complex run by none other than Miss Rose Marie from the Dick Van Dyke show. <laughs> A little cameo appearance, if you will. Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> a very little cameo. There ain't much of her. She's Yeah, she's not given much to do at yeah. all. Yeah. It seems like it's this, this old house with a lot of history behind it that has since been broken up into, like, several apartments. And one of the apartments uh, within this house are leading players. Several of them reside. Um, it's Jim and Linda's apartment. And it kind of opens up with them having this event at this house. And the first time you see the house, I swear to God, it like the, the shot hovers on the house for like three minutes straight. Like I was like, how long are we going to look at this fucking house? Like I get it. And you've got this like really kind of of the era, electronic synth heavy music kind of coming in. Um, very much saying the tone. It feels very much plucked right from that time period, right from the 80s. Everything about it, from the way they film the movie to the clothing they wear to the music that's playing, it is very much uh, not what I would call ahead of its time. <laughs> it is very much a product of the era. Oh, absolutely. Even the opening scene that, that introduces us to the variety of characters that we spend the rest of the film with is a party that is very much 80s. The fashion is completely 80s. It's like a bunch of, you know, 80s, your stereotypical 80s yuppies gathered in this apartment of, of Linda and Jim uh, having a, a party when we are introduced, like I said, to our main characters, Linda and Jim, who are a couple. And then uh, Brandon who is having a conversation about not believing in God. Oh, I instantly hate them right away when I hear this conversation. It's so pretentious. <laughs> right away, we are also introduced to some of the animosity 
that exists between Jim, played by Todd Allen, uh, and Brandon, played by Stephen Nichols. There is this animosity to it, and we we kind of find out the source of it as the film goes on. But as he's having this discussion with this nerdy dude that's sitting next to him, Brandon mentions the fact that, hey, how can you even think that you know there is uh, intelligent life on Earth when we have Jim here making a jab at him? Jim gets upset, goes into the kitchen to get away from the jabs of Brandon in the kitchen. He runs into two of these like annoying stoner type guys. One of them is named Lloyd. I don't know the other one's name and some, you know, conversation ensues about how pretentious Brandon is. His family comes from a, or his family owns a, what, what is it? A vineyard or something. So they have a lot of money. Obviously he thinks he's better than everybody else. And Jim goes into a little bit of detail about how when they were younger, they used to be really, really close. But Brandon thinks that Jim stole Linda from him because we find out that Brandon and Linda used to date. I think the way that they introduce these characters, it it doesn't necessarily do them a lot of favor because you kind of come in on the most like unlikable note. <laughs> like it's this pretentious conversation about God. And it's so like, it's so like baseline. If you listen to the dialogue, it's so like the most simplistic take on whether or not there is like a God, how could there not be a God? Like there's, how would you explain us being here today? Like, I don't know. It just, it seems kind of half-assed this whole dialogue that I'm hearing. And it just doesn't make them seem likable because it just does read on both ends they each have a major trait that makes them just overall very um, hard to stomach at first. Jim is obviously an alcoholic and very mean um, and very cruel. And then Brandon has all of this hostility towards Jim. uh, So he's also very pretentious and very uppity. And so all of his jabs at Jim are very like kind of talking down to him and belittling him. So it makes them both very unlikable. And I just think that, it doesn't do either of them any favors, but it does at least present Linda right off the bat to be the most likable of the three focal characters. Oh, with that sensible bun and that white, you know, ensemble she's wearing. I mean, come the on. The volume of hair atop <laughs> <laughs> Linda's head is just—it is, it is so much red hair. Tawny Katane's hair is uh, out of control in this movie. <laughs> It gets, and do you notice it gets progressively redder as the film goes I love on? It. Like the and those nails, Let's yeah. Up, like these nails are—they are not fitting of the story at all. Like they're presenting Linda to be to be one way, and she's lovely and she's beautiful, but she has this fire engine red hair, and it's just all consuming. And then she's got these fucking stripper nails, and not only are they stripper nails at the beginning of the movie, by the end of the movie they are like scarlet red. <laughs> they are so distracting. They are always like whenever they're on camera my eyes go right to her fucking like hooker nails but i love that for her i love that for linda that she's a confident woman with such exaggerated nails i did find it interesting you know that they open the opening shot of the film as as the they're having in this discussion that linda is sitting very closely to brandon right when she's supposed to be with jim i felt that was kind of an uh sort of a little confusing element to add because with the hostility that Brandon and Jim have, you wouldn't expect her to be like that cozy next to Brandon. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And Jim, Jim being okay with it. Uh, it was kind of a weird little 
thing that I noticed. I'm like, eh, this really doesn't fit the dynamic of the characters that they're really trying to present here. Uh, and then did you notice like the one nerdy guy like hanging all over yes. Brandon? I'm like, is this, oh. is this supposed to be like a homoerotic? <laughs> if we're going to talk homoerotic tones, this movie's shock fucking full oh. of them. Oh, it's full. Oh, of them. it's brimming. It's just yes. one of the gayer movies I've seen in a while. I wanted, I mean, I was all, hey, later on in the film when the two lead, male leads are staying in that hotel room, I fully expected some, <laughs> you know. I was like, when are the dicks coming out? Because like, literally, this movie does set itself up to be a big, long lead up to what is a, a, just a very elaborate gay porn. Uh, and it could have done that and probably been just as successful in, in, in what it's trying to do. It probably would have been a little bit more interesting, to be honest with you. Yeah. You know what? I, I hate to say it. I like this movie. It's fun. It's very fun. But there's a certain kind of flatness that exists from beginning to end for me, from the visuals. And it's often shot well, but there's just still something kind of bland about it. I think a lot of it's the interior of the location. The house itself is beautiful, but you get a lot of this really bland um, apartment interior. And there's just like, there's this certain kind of like glossy cinematic quality that it's just lacking and i can't put my finger on it do you know what i'm talking about i do know what you're talking about and i also feel like it's the story the story is pretty hollow and and shallow and there the ending really kind of leaves at least for me i don't know about you the ending kind of left a bad taste in my mouth and i will explain obviously as we get there why but i feel like the build-up there's a lot of like build up to something that could have been really interesting and really dynamic and really like extreme over and it just doesn't have it never happens oh yeah and to build off that troy i also feel that a lot of the things it's trying to do as it's building up and maybe it was budgetary restraints like i don't know how big of a scale this production really was i'm not i didn't do my sleuthing to that extent uh to be completely transparent i just kind of went in re like watched the movie and like stepped away from it like this is how i feel about this film but looking at it for just what it is i'm assuming it had to be just budget or of the era i don't feel like you know they're talking about like her getting sick and taken over by this force as it starts to progress but i never feel like we see anything um that really is building up any real like <laughs> fear or hinting at there's actually a presence within her house or around Linda. And we'll get to that more, but I just think like they could have done a way better job of building the dread, that level of dread around her. You get what I'm saying? Oh yeah, I do. I do. There's yeah. There's just something that's, I think you're, you're right. You're, there's just something that's off about the film and it never comes together as fully as it probably should. So Linda comes into the kitchen and is trying to console Jim about how Brandon's treated her. He makes the comment, you know, why did you even invite him? You knew this was going to happen. She's like, yeah, I know, but you know, just, just kind of deal with it. He, it's going to be, it's going to be fine. And he, and we start this trend of her telling him that she loves him. And his response is always, I know <laughs> he never says it back and you can tell it bothers him. And then it is brought up in conversation between her and Brandon later on. So I did find that again, I found that very interesting. It was an interesting plot element to, to put between this, this um, couple that is going to be our protagonist. But again, it's never, it never really goes to the extent that I think it could have to, you know, give them some layer and some depth to their characters. 
they go out into they go out into the living room, and now the conversation shifts to spirits. And for some reason, Brandon brought his Ouija board to this party. I mean, I, I guess he just carries this Ouija board around with him everywhere. This is such a weird introduction to to the the what's at play the witch board if you will this is just such a weird way to like force it into the conversation yeah it's just at this like big yuppie party and he just happens to bring the ouija board along with him and you know the film's called witch board i'm assuming it's because they could not get the rights to call it ouija board because that's a trademarked name i just want to point that out because the, the word witch board is never mentioned in the film it's called it's a ouija board the entire time right. but yeah, so he talks about this Ouija board that he has and that it works best with two people and the two people need to have pure systems, meaning they, you know, they don't drink, they're not they're not smoking, they're not drinking. As we as we watch Jim sit there and chug, you know, booze and chain smoke. Uh, and Linda's her curiosity is a little peaked. So Brandon asks her, "Hey, do you want to try this?" And she's like, no, I don't think so. And he sort of convinces her to do it by telling her about a spirit that he contacts all the time named David. And David is the spirit of a, of a little boy who died, who apparently inhabits this particular Ouija board because it was the Ouija board was built on the same day that David died. She agrees and you know they, they start playing the Ouija board and he asks Hey, David, are you there? And the Ouija board planchette moves to yes. And then he asks, how old are you, David? And it goes to eight. And he immediately stops. He pulls his hands off the board. And he's like, nope, we're done. And Linda's like, what's what's wrong? And he's like, that's not David. David is 10. And you have to be really careful about the spirits that you contact because they can be mischievous. They, they like to lie to you. And so you just need to be aware of what you're doing, what you're asking, how much of the how much information you are providing to this particular Ouija board. I feel like this Ouija board setup is it's very convoluted and it's got a lot of layers to mm-hmm. it. And I you know, maybe at the time there is just less public knowledge about Ouija boards, but like they're taking it real seriously. Like Brandon is into this. He's really passionate about talking about the Ouija board. He specifically makes sure that everyone knows it's a Ouija board, not a Ouija board. And he like corrects everybody on it. Um, And this whole story he has about like, I talked to this child specter named David. He's 10 years of age. He died the, the day that the Ouija board was constructed. Like it is just, it's a lot of nonsense <laughs> and they're taking it so very seriously. Like it's not, it doesn't feel like there's kind of like a heightened reality to all of this. He is 100% sold on what he's saying to these people about this fucking Ouija board. Um, and it does make it kind of like a hard pill to swallow this early into the film that you're getting such like a nonsensical bit of information that you have to go off of and be like, okay, this is the plot. <laughs> like, this is what they're giving me. I just got to roll with it. I got to go with it. And like, what comes from it will come from it. And it just, it, it really is a really weak setup, but like, it's still entertaining. It just, um, it doesn't seem very thought together. You know, you mentioned issues with the story. Like it literally feels like they're just trying to find a way to be like, okay, how do we get a Ouija board into this story? Let's have it come out at a party. 
and we'll just go from there. It, it feels very um, like a very weak setup for this concept. They try again. Brandon tries to contact David again, and this time he gets David because he, he, I guess David has a specific like um, trademark that he uses with Brandon to let him know that it's really him, and it's doing it's he makes a figure eight with uh, the with the planchette, so they know it's really David. So they're just having a, a casual conversation, him, Linda, and David, when Jim is on the couch just making you know inappropriate wisecracking comments to the point where apparently the spirit of david gets really really upset and starts like causing the planchette to go wild and then to the point where jim says something like oh he makes a joke about david being dead and all of a sudden the ouija board flips off of their laps and they hear a explosion like a popping sound outside and everyone gets up to look and they notice that brandon's car tire has been it's been popped yeah it's clear that obviously david is not pleased with the outcome of the situation and that somehow some spectral force has popped the tire and what i appreciate about brandon is he straight up says to jim he's like you caused that spectro to pop my tire and everyone's like go fuck yourself dude like <laughs> this is all about like a crock of shit at least jim calls it like he sees it and he straight up just tells Brandon, like, I think this is a lot of bullshit. And Jim is very unlikable. Like he's very, very like just unpleasant, but he definitely sees things at least from a perspective that I feel like I could relate to, you know? Well, yeah, he's, he's the skeptic and you know, you gotta be a skeptic when you're talking about things like Ouija boards or anything to, to relating to like the supernatural, you know, it's, it's one of those things that we don't, really have all the answers to so you definitely want to question what someone is is telling you about this specific you know and you know Ouija board have you ever played with the Ouija board Roger yes but like I mean aren't they like mass produced like what I'm so confused Hasbro or Parker Brothers puts them out I mean you could go yeah. and toys you could used to be able to go on Toys R Us and buy a fucking Ouija board yeah it's it's strange to me that there's still such like a like a an allure to it and people are so drawn in by the idea and like again this movie is really trying to lean into the mystic like qualities of the ouija board and i don't know it just it seems like um something that's been tread on so much in the years to follow like isn't there even that movie that came out within the last 10 years that was called ouija board or ouija or it was called ouija ouija yeah and it was definitely like a popcorn flick for teens you know and so that studio paid the extra money to get the rights to use the name in their title, yeah, right? Yeah. But yeah, so there's a big confrontation between Jim and uh, Brandon outside of his vehicle. And Brandon basically unleashes on Jim and calls him a fucking loser. And they almost get into a physical altercation, but it's broken up. And apparently Brandon leaves because we cut to later that night. Linda and Jim are getting ready for bed. She expresses her extreme displeasure with Jim for starting shit with Brandon. And he is like, well, what did you want me to do? Was I just supposed to sit there and take it? And she's like, oh, I guess you're right. And he says, I'm sorry. And again, she says she loves him again. And he says, I know. He never tells this broad he loves her. But they make up. They get in bed and they cuddle. And we do cut to a zoom in on their living room. And we see that Brandon left the Ouija board at their place. And I don't know if I buy that. Like, if this Ouija board is was so damn important to him, would he just really just leave it there? Yeah. No. I love how this scene starts, and like Tawny Katane is furious, and her 
hair is big and it's like red and filled with anger. And then like Jim gives her this like half ass excuse for needing to, to like defend himself against Brandon. And so quickly she's like, you're right. <laughs> like she doesn't have a whole lot of depth to her. <laughs> Linda. No. Well, this Jim, this Jim character, you, you really, he really is just a despicable. Yeah. He gets a little better as it goes on, but. He does, you know, and I, I'm, I know they, they gave, he does have a, he does have a character arc, you know, that comes into full force, but God, the first half of this film, you were like, this guy's a fucking asshole. What does she see in him? And not that Brandon's any better, but come yeah, on. It's Tawny fucking Katane. She can have any man she wants. This next scene that comes up here, I've got to say is, is kind of a standout sequence for me. Overall, in the great course of the film, I think this might be the one that got the biggest reaction out of me. It starts off a little weird, this whole scene at the construction sequence, and it goes back and forth, kind of, it cuts between this and another scene, but what it's eventually, inevitably building up to, I have to say, is one of my favorite moments within the film. So I really appreciate this specific sequence overall and what it's building to. I think it's rather well executed. And I'm happy that the character that gets killed off first is one of the more annoying characters in the film. He's at his works. He's at the work construction site. He's apparently he's a construction worker. He's building a home. Lloyd is there. He realizes he lost his hammer, which really is a hatchet. I mean, he calls it a hammer throughout the film. And I guess there is the hammer end up side of it, but it's a hatchet. He, he lost it. So fucking Lloyd throws his at him and it nearly hits him in the fucking head. I would be pissed. Oh, I would have been fucking livid. I'd been like, you're, you could have killed me. I have a prominent nose. What, what, what if I would have turned too fast? You could have chopped my <laughs> fucking nose off. <laughs> well, they go, they, they, they take a lunch break and they lay on, you know, this bench that's under a, a scaffold of drywall, which we see uh, the camera slowly zoom up and reveal that Jim's lost ha- hatchet hammer is up on top of this drywall that's suspended on a scaffold okay then we do cut but you know you're right it cuts in in between scenes because we cut to linda getting um a a message on an answering machine about her test results coming back and that she needs to call them to get the results and then we get another she gets a message from brandon telling her hey i left my ouija board at your place can you please bring it to class tomorrow let's talk about this bow on top of her head real fast let's talk about this big purple fucking bow it's so distracting it looks like straight out of a whitney houston music video it's gigantic she she definitely wants to dance with somebody with that big ass bow on her hair <laughs> but she uh instead of like packing the ouija board up and taking it to uh back to brandon she decides to sit on the couch and use it by herself which brandon at the beginning of the film warned you know not to use ouija boards alone right so she's ignoring his advice so she tries to contact David and to her surprise, she gets him. And there is this weird like conversation that she's having about choosing his parents. Did you understand this? Like, she's like, no, David, would you like to choose your parents? First of all, she asks him if she knows what he's talking about in terms of, or if he knows what she's talking about in terms of the test results. And he goes to yes. And she's like, oh, they're positive, correct? And she, it goes to yes. And then she's like hinting around that maybe he could like be their kid. Did you get this? Yeah, it's very, very weird. She's like, David, would you like to? And it immediately goes to no. And she's like, why not? And he basically spells out that he doesn't like Jim. I mean, 
this is this okay this is this broad's first time playing with this ouija board and the first thing she's going to ask if the spirit wants to be her child <laughs> it's very strange and then she's like go oh, david you should know how to keep a grudge and he goes to yes um so she's having this very like casual conversation with a spirit and it seems to be all okay meanwhile over at the construction site uh, his kooky friend Lloyd is discussing with Jim about the fact that Brandon was once his best friend. He's giving him all this backstory on it. And you're kind of learning a bit about this relationship, which I do appreciate. And it does make for at least these these two characters to have a little more explanation as to like why they're such fucking dicks to each other uh, whenever around each other. And you learn that Jim was in med school at one point. So a lot of these jabs that Brandon is making a gym do seem really like kind of shitty and cutting and intentional. Like earlier when he said, like, I was just defending myself. Like a lot of the things that Brandon has been saying to Jim does seem very provoking when you learn this backstory on him. You know what I mean? Oh yeah. Brandon definitely knows the right things to say to get under Jim's skin. And any, any comments that he makes about Jim being a loser or not being very smart, it all goes back to the fact that he did drop out of med school and again, it's it's very intentional that he is trying to provoke Jim and you know get a get a rise out of him because I mean that there's this rivalry between them. He's still very up. He's not pleased that Jim and Linda are together, as we do find out, and he does admit later in the film. So there's this moment where you know uh, Jim gets up, and we know something's going to happen because we keep seeing that hatchet, and you know you, you don't know. I thought maybe the hatchet was going to fall you know, and hit one of them. But what ends up happening is Jim, Jim gets up as Lloyd is laying back and puts the hat over his face. Like he's going to take a nap. And Jim's like, come on, you lazy ass, get up. We got work to do. And, you know, just prodding him when all of a sudden, out of nowhere, the fucking scaffolding that's above them falls and crushes poor Lloyd to death. And there is a very, you know, unsettling scene where Jim rushes over and starts pulling the, the drywall and stuff off of Lloyd's body. And he, basically gets to see Lloyd spit out blood and take his last breath. I think the shot of the scaffolding and drywall falling on Lloyd is actually very effective. Probably my favorite moment in the movie in the sense of just overall, like if you're going to look at horror factor, like this movie really isn't what I would call scary. There's very few moments in this film that are genuinely scary. It's fun. It's a popcorn flick. I enjoy watching it. Um, but it's really, the scare factor is pretty minimal. But this moment got me to jump. It made me react. And it's pretty brutal. Like, you don't see any, like, you know, the wreckage, like, sticking out of his body or anything. But when you see it land on him, you see that it definitely, like, crushes him in the torso. And it just looks really brutal. And it's really well played. I, I really enjoyed this moment. Yeah, it is definitely brutal. It's it's startling. You, you know, like I said, it, I like the little buildup because, you know, something's going to happen. And in my mind, like I said, I was like, OK, the hatchet's going to fall down and almost hit one of them or hit one of them on the head or do something. I did not expect the whole fucking scaffold to fall on top of poor Lloyd. But Lloyd was rather annoying. So, you know. Sorry, Lloyd. Good riddance. Uh, yeah. Back at the apartment, fucking Linda is just obsessing over this Ouija board because now she's contacting David again. And I guess in order for him to prove to her that he's real, the first thing he spells out is ring. 
R-I-N-G-E. And she's like, what do you mean ring? Are you talking about my diamond ring that I lost? And he goes to yes. And he and she's like, you know where it's at? And he goes to yes. And she, where? And he spells out drain. Misspells it, but she is able to realize it spells drain. And it's he sa- tells her it's in the bathroom drain. So fucking Miss Plumber, fucking Connie, Tawny Katane becomes a fucking plumber. And she goes into the bathroom and is able to take the sink apart and... <laughs> find her fucking diamond ring in the fucking sink and she just leaves it afterwards too which i know <laughs> but i honestly i needed this scene because like i said leading up to this point the whole explanation and backstory for the ouija board has not really like been selling me in the overall like scare factor of the potential of what could be you know um and this scene at least now you know that there is definitely a presence. It's not just people moving their hands around fooling each other. Like, you now have proof that there is a presence. He tells her the ring's in the sink. The ring is in the sink. She's pretty fucking happy about herself getting that ring back. And I would be too, uh, Tawny Katane, with those long nails. And she's trying to, like, pick up the, the ring with her fucking, like, claw nail. And she, like, breaks it. But, yeah, no, I, I like this little moment, and I like that it kind of sets the groundwork that there really is something more. It's not just in their heads. So she gets the ring out with a toothbrush, which I thought was kind of gross. I don't know whose toothbrush that was, but she's sticking it in the drain. I'm like, Ugh. hopefully it was Jim's. Because he is, as she turns around, she sees his reflection in the mirror behind her, and it startles her to the point where she's like, don't fucking sneak up on me ever again. And he, his reaction to her here is like off very off-putting i mean this is a grown woman right and he literally scolds her like she's a child for cussing yeah well there's a few issues i have with this first of all it is the way that he responds to her because it just it very much seems like he has expectations for her from her as a woman and it's like go fuck yourself man like you've been talking like a truck driver this whole time you've been chain smoking drinking beer like worry about yourself you got your own fucking demons to work through don't worry about how she's talking but the other issue i have is like so you start to get the idea like you're you're basically informed that there is like an ever-growing presence in and around linda under the influence of this force the spirit this demon and the only thing you're really given to take away from it is like that she's occasionally like go fuck yourself like like every once in a while she like gets angry but like it's like when she's startled every time it happens it's pretty much when she's startled and like a reflection or something and i it's just how i would react on a regular day with somebody like oh shit what the fuck's your problem you know like so it just doesn't seem like enough to really imply to me that there's something wrong with her like i'm not picking up on it yet you know no. Well, the problem is we haven't spent that much time with the character yet, so we don't know. We the audience have no idea that she doesn't cuss. We've only been we've only been in one scene with her. Like if they wanted it to like startle the audience or make the audience think, "Oh, what, what something's not right with." Her, then they should have mentioned it early on in the film. There should have been some little thing that's that said that, "Oh, Linda's so she never cut." But it for us to get get our first knowledge of that by him scolding her like she's a little toddler was not the right way to go about it in my opinion and he he just comes off as a total fucking prick in the scene and i get it his friend he just saw his friend die okay i understand that but the way he talks to her and talks down to her and like you said yeah like there's some like sort of misogynistic undertones to it because it's like, oh i didn't know you knew how to plumb 
when did you take up plumbing? And, you know, she's, she's really excited about her ring. She's like, well, look, you remember David, he told me when he's like, David, and she's like, yeah, the spirit in the, he's like, I don't need this right fucking now and storms out. And she goes after him and she's like, well, what's the matter? And he tells her that Lloyd was killed in an accident. And of course she's like, Oh my God, that's so terrible. I told you, I don't like you working that job. It's so dangerous. I do like at least that this conversation wrap like wraps up on like a touching note. Cause like, yes, they have moments where like he's kind of shitty to her. There's moments where they kind of butt heads a bit, but like, at least you do get to see this moment of her like comforting him. And he is like, as a male, he's showing, emotions which i i'm happy about that at least you know like he's crying over his friend dying and so it's kind of a genuine sensitive moment by the end of it it just starts weird it starts on like that really hostile note but when you kind of explore his feelings and what he just went through like not saying like it's okay i just i get where he's coming from more you know yeah yeah and he doesn't necessarily cry in this particular scene because that again his his lack of emotions and his coldness comes into play and i think that's part of the character arc as the film goes on yeah. as we see him 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 becoming more emotional but this particular scene he yeah he's not crying he's he's literally like kind of stone-faced he's hurting he's hurting over it he's, but he's hurting but it's it. not like yeah, yeah exactly exactly there it does cut to this really awkward like out of nowhere moment where all of a sudden she's it's an aerial zoom from the Ouija board to her now all of a sudden in bed in the middle of the day. And she like wakes up and is frightened, like lets out a scream because she sees her reflection in the mirror. And then she realizes she has morning sickness. So she runs in the bathroom and we are treated to hearing her puke. And of course, this is just reading, reiterating in her mind that she, in fact, is pregnant. And it's kind of this moment where we realize, hey, she's taken the Ouija board's word. <laughs> that yeah. she's pregnant she's not she's never calls the doctor or the hospital back to find out the results for sure and again this comes into play later on as well which i kind of liked honestly same same and i i gotta say for these moments here you start to get them more and more you get these pov shots from um like the from the spirit's perspective as it moves through the room and it is kind of awkward but i also think it's like one of the more standout aspects of the movie in the sense of stylistic decisions it is it's similar to what you saw from night of the demons but that was way that was more like sporadic and like really like intense and and, and highly energized and and this is more like a dreamy and almost distorted as it kind of like floats around her around the bed and and moving through the house and everything and and i like that i really like the score they layer on top of these moments the demonic pov uh, it's very dreamy. It's very haunting. And I, even with it being like a fake out scare where she sees her reflection, I still felt like this is a moment that kind of knew what it was going for and accomplished the goal. I like this little moment. I, okay. I, I like the moment as well. I feel like it's in an awkward place in the film. I agree. Uh, yeah. Yeah. It just, it's like literally just kind of stuck in there. It doesn't flow well from the scene before. Right. Right. That was my issue with it. I do think it's a very well done. I like the camera flight, you know, the aerial camera zooming through the house or through the apartment and kind of getting a close up on her. I like it. I just feel like it was a really awkwardly placed scene. Yeah. Yeah. We cut to Lloyd's funeral. Uh, everyone's there. And as Jim and Linda leave, they are approached by perhaps the most pointless character <laughs> of any film we've seen in the probably that we've reviewed in the last year i don't know if you agree but this just comes so out of like 
left field and I kind of get what they were going for. But to me, this particular subplot point with this detective, whatever the fuck his name is, Dewhurst, Detective Dewhurst, I was like, oh, and he just shows up awkwardly in really awkward moments and like nothing becomes of the character. Like this is literally a pointless character. Now, I, again, I get what he's, I get what they were going for. Basically, he approaches Jim and long story short, because this thing goes on for fucking ever. And I was just really getting tired of the uh, references and the allusions to Vegas and magicians that he keeps talking about. I'm like, you get to the fucking point. This is a 10 minute scene. Uh, he's like, oh, have you been to Vegas? There's a, let's do a set of magicians there that are among the best I've ever seen. And he calls them Sigmund and Roy. And it's not Sigmund and Roy, it's Siegfried and Roy. But anyways, the whole point of this 10 minute conversation is that he thinks that Lloyd was murdered. Because the uh, upon investigation, he finds out that the scaffolding ropes were cut with a hatchet. And he's like, have you found your hatchet yet, Jim? And long story, again, basically the whole thing is he is suspicious that Jim had something to do with the murder of Lloyd or that Jim was the intended target of Lloyd. And, you know, you're building up to this moment where you think, oh, God, this is this is going to be kind of interesting. You know, this whole subplot of is Jim, is Jim really like, could he really be the killer or could this be like a, you know, it goes nowhere. Jim's like, Oh, well, no, I don't have the hatchet. And the detective is like, okay, have a nice day and walks away and just pops up a couple more times randomly. Two things to take away from the funeral scene. The good thing, Tawny Katane in that hat, that, that black fedora hat with those gold earrings. She looks great. Um, <laughs> The bad thing I take away from this scene is the introduction of this character. Uh, the lieutenant is so aggressive, like right from the start, he's very aggressive. And this whole lead-in about magic and, and Sigmund and Roy is very bloated. And you can tell they're trying to be like, let's really establish this character here. And like, he doesn't really do a lot. So let's make sure like when we show him, we make him sound important by just giving him more things to say. Like, that's what it feels like because he really does not serve any purpose, though he's just extremely like aggressive and tries to be very intimidating with Jim. And it just doesn't land at all. Like he's never actually intimidating. He just comes off kind of kooky and weird and just does not fit the flow of the story. Mm hmm. Not at all. Not at all. They Again, I, I think it would have been a very interesting choice if they would have played up maybe the suspicion on Jim. Like, oh, could he with the audience to be like, could Jim really be the killer? And this is all just a, the Ouija board stuff is just a guise. And it's really Jim, you know, taking the opportunity to off these people to try to maybe blame Brandon or something. But it never really goes there. Yeah. I think there's things here that they could have cut down significantly to have given this more. They could have cut the entire character of this detective Dewhurst out of the well, film. But I also think it's an intriguing like an, like angle. Like it gives it, you know, again, I like to say it all the time. I like it when they're raising the stakes. This raises the stakes because now there is a very human uh, element to the story where like, you know, obviously the law is potentially coming for this character atop like these fantastical witchcraft Ouija board spirits that like nobody's going to believe when the law actually comes for him, you know? So it's, it, I guess it's one of those things that I wish it would have just played a bit more of a major factor and been more of a threat 
for Jim, you know, or made it seem like he was in a position that he could, I don't know, be arrested or something. Because it's just, as it's played in the movie, it's not used enough to really feel like a threat. Uh, now, Linda contacts David again to ask if he caused the accident. Of course, he says no. And she gets startled by a phone call. And it is Brandon asking her why she did not bring the Ouija board to class. She has not been to class. And this is when she says, you know, Brandon, I I, I totally forgot because I was at the funeral with Jim for Lloyd. And, and Brandon's like, oh, okay, that's understandable. And he goes into this kind of tirade about did he cry at the funeral and she doesn't answer him and he says that's what i expect you know that he has nothing but ice in his veins he's a cold-hearted person and that's just how he's always been she ignores that you know and she launches into telling him that she has been contacting david by herself and he gets to ready to tell her you should not be doing that when her phone just disconnects Phone, phone, phone died, and all of a sudden Jim comes up behind her and sneaks up on her again, and she explodes this time very, very violently and aggressively towards him. Yeah, yeah, it's another explosive reaction, and uh, it causes her to like kind of break down. And there is a moment where like she lays her head in his lap, and he kind of comforts her. Um, so it is, it's nice to see a little more. Um, a little bit more of a pleasant energy between the two of them because everything up to this point has seemed very shaky. You look at them and you think like, why are these two together? Like there's so much animosity between them. You know, you don't really see a lot of of, um, pleasantries between Linda and Jim over the course of the movie. And this is when she tells him that she's pregnant and he even mentions, oh, so you went and got the test results. And she's like, no, I just know that I am. And he seems genuinely happy about her being pregnant. And again, this is the third time in the film where she tells him, I love you. And what does he say? I know. And you can tell it bothers her this time. She does give like this facial reaction when he says, I know. You can tell it really bothers her that he will not say I love you back to her. This leads to a smoky dream sequence that it, this does look straight out of a fucking white snake music video. Like, you know, they're like, we got Tawny Katane, fill it with smoke. I mean, I need there to be so much smoke in this room that you can't fucking see three feet in front of you. And she's, all she's doing is walking. That's all she's doing. She's just walking down hallways, walking into rooms, walking up to coffins. <laughs> coffins that have Ouija boards on them. And then she's just standing there looking down and all of a sudden these hands come up and choke her and that's it. Just a dream sequence. doesn't really serve a purpose. Well, and it, you know, we know it's a dream sequence from the start. So it wasn't like, Ooh, Ooh, this is, we know because of the way they filmed it, you're right with the smoke and everything, you know, damn well, this is a dream sequence. So it's a kind of a cool scene, but again, is it necessary? Was it necessary? Probably not. No, they needed to build this kind of like, if they're going to do these kinds of moments, they needed to kind of build upon that more, almost kind of what you see in like an insidious, you know, how there's this alt- alternate kind of other world where all the, sp- the spirits exist and they kind of bleed through. That would have been cool for this, you know, kind of tapping into that a bit, but they don't give you enough of these moments for it to really be a thing. You can tell they literally just wanted to have a moment with, t- uh, with Tawny Katay. <laughs> walking through smoke in a dress looking pouty lipped and big haired as she does through most of the movie 
and she does it well. Oh, yeah, I mean, I'm surprised that her career didn't really take off. Well, no, I'm not. I mean, I'm, <laughs> who am I kidding? Drugs, <laughs> drugs. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Back to her by herself at home. She's playing with the Ouija board again. She's contacting David to tell him that she is giving the board back to Brandon that night, and he immediately goes to no. And she sets the Ouija board down, gets up, goes to the kitchen. Now, this is one of the scenes. I said, there's two scenes from this film that I remembered seeing this film, what, 40 years ago now. I did remember this scene of the knife. She's in the kitchen getting something out of the refrigerator. And one of her butcher knives falls off of the the knife rack, sticks in the ground. And then a bottle of ketchup strategically knocks itself over and pours onto the floor to make the, and a puddle under the knife to make it look like it's the, it's bleeding and she runs to the door to, to try to get out and it's locked. And then you just get this like hard cut to the exterior of the house and you just hear her scream. It's a very dramatic cutaway and scream. There's a couple of these very dramatic cutaways and screams. It does make the movie feel occasionally very cheap. This, this film, <laughs> it makes some bold choices at times to cut away from key moments that I feel like could have really given us more, shown us more. It's almost kind of a trope over the course of the movie. I feel like in some ways they kind of chicken out of showing you certain things by just cutting away. Um, I don't know. It definitely makes the movie feel a little bit cheaper. You know, we're left. The audience is left to to question, okay, what happened to her? Did she get killed? What's going on? And we go back to Jim at his construction site. Brandon shows up to confront Jim to ask him if Linda has been acting weird. Has she been cussing? Has she been moody? Has she been preoccupied? Because he's noticed that she's not attending her classes anymore. And Jim is like, well, yeah, so what? And Brandon launches into this long, drawn out explanation, explaining to Jim that he thinks that she is becoming possessed by the spirit in the Ouija board, and he calls it progressive entrapment. It is when the spirit starts off being very pleasant and very nice to the user, which we saw. We saw a couple of episodes of that with, you know, David, quote unquote, being nice to Linda, telling her where her ring was and things like that. And he is like, I really want to bring a medium to your apartment because this could get ugly if she continues to be obsessive about the Ouija board. And Jim is being, again, very skeptical. He's he's basically laughing in Brandon's face, like laughing. He's like, you are fucking ridiculous. This is the stupidest thing I've ever heard in my life. And Brandon's like, well, how would I know all of this stuff about Linda, about what she's going through, what how she's been acting the last couple of weeks? And Jim tells him, hey, that has nothing to do with progressive entrapment has everything to do with her being pregnant. Of course, Brandon is not happy about this. He's like, fuck, are you going to marry her? And Jim's like, I don't know, probably. And Brandon explodes on him. He's like, you don't even fucking love her. You're going to leave her once you get sick of her. And they get into a, a confrontation where it looks like Jim is about ready to hit him with his fucking hammer. What stops him is a coworker comes in and tells Jim that he has a phone call and it's the landlady calling about Linda. So he goes and takes the call and it is the lovely Rosemary from the Dick Van Dyke show. It just tickles my funny bone that she's in this looking 
just as made up and <laughs> as she as she did in the Dick Van Dyke show with that mole and her bright eyeshadow and everything. She has that same concerned. voice. Yeah, she's very concerned. And and Jim's like, "What happened?" And and the landlady's like, "She's okay, but she's very scared." So he asks if he can speak to her. The landlady gives the phone to Linda, and Linda gets on the phone and tells Jim that she is very scared that David is the one that is causing all this mischief. And he's like, "Okay, I'll be I'll be home as soon as I can." Hangs up. And he looks at Brandon and he says, yes, you can bring your medium by my apartment tonight. And boy, does he bring a medium. Oh my God, the star of the fucking show. Bella the ball. Zarabeth is what she goes by. Zarabeth. How do you feel about Zarabeth? Listen, Zarabeth is, I think, really what I needed for this movie um, at this point. Because up to this point, I would literally describe this film with one word. And that word is beige. Everything about Witchboard thus far has been very beige to me. Uh, the color palette to just the overall kind of like levels of blandness of most of the attempted scares and so forth. It just hasn't had any spunk or oomph or anything that like really kind of makes it stand out. And Zarabeth very much does stand out, even though she's in the film for a, br- a very brief period of time. I appreciate having a character that doesn't feel like they're kind of constructed out of cardboard, you know, like, I mean, not, not like any of the characters in the movie are bad, but they're all kind of just going through the motions. You know, there's, of course, there's a love triangle. A lot of the rationale and reasoning, the decisions they make um, don't seem completely like realistic. Oftentimes Um, they just seem very um, phoned in, I guess, like, and from a writing standpoint, it's not like the actor's fault. It's just the way that these characters are written. So now we have this character that comes into play who is uh, unlike anybody in this movie. She's fucking crazy cuckoo bananas. Uh, She's so loud. She's so big. She's so colorful. And I really think this movie needed to inject this. So I'm appreciative of her presence. What about you? Yeah. I mean, I think, I think she teeters on that fine line of being like annoying Versus, yeah, being a, a very welcomed part of the film. Because you are right, the, the characters in this film are pretty paper thin in terms of their presentation. And then you get this just, she's almost, it's almost like she's in a different movie. I mean, we're introduced to her and she's uh, popping bubblegum and just being loud and obnoxious, cracking jokes uh, throughout the entire thing. And, uh, you know, they... Proceeds, and you can tell right away. Jim is like, "You got to be fucking kidding me! Who yeah. is this?" She the looks outfit like she- here, the makeup. It is not a subtle performance by any means. No, no. <laughs> and Jim even says, "Where'd you find her? The fucking circus?" And he's like, "Just trust me. She's the best um, medium in Southern California." So they proceed to do a séance, and there is a little line where she's like, "Oh, I can't go through with it. I forgot my crystal ball," and they're looking at her and she's like oh it's just some psychic humor ah, she just loves to crack jokes she does I, I wouldn't trust this broad whatsoever though i'm gonna be honest like if she walked in i would be like girl <laughs> like there's no way there's no way i'm gonna entrust you with this duty i do have to say i, I like the fact that they present her as being so nonchalant about the whole thing i think in other films where we've seen psychics and seance scenes the the medium is usually 99 percent of the time very serious right 
Think of like Lynn Shay's character in Insidious and all of these seance scenes we've seen in movies. The, the, the psychic is super, super serious about, about it. This Zarebeth is not at all. She's very flighty and nonchalant about the whole thing. But with that said, she is able to make contact with David. And there is this like seance scene. It's not the most effective seance scene I've ever seen, but she's talking in David's voice. And, you know, Brandon asks her very first question, how old are you? Because that's a key question because David is 10 and she's able to say, I'm 10. And Brandon's like, why have you been terrorizing Linda? And he says, I love Linda, but she hurt me because she won't talk to me anymore because of Jim. He does point that out. David does say it's because of Jim. Brandon's like, you need to leave her alone. I'm taking the Ouija board home tonight and you are not to contact Linda ever again. And in a sad little voice through Zarebeth, he says, I'm sorry, I'll leave. I never meant to hurt anybody. And this pulls at Linda's heartstrings apparently because she darts out of her seat, even though she was told at the beginning to stay in your seat, right? She darts out of her seat and she's like, no, you don't have to go. And it breaks the contact with David, all the beer cans that they stacked up in front of the window. They all come tumbling down and Zarebeth comes too. I like this whole sequence. I like the whole, I like the whole thing. I thought it was fun. I liked her performance when she went from that really kind of eccentric character to like the voice of the child. You know, I thought it was, yeah, yeah. Like, like the, the, the echo that they put on her voice, it was it was fun. It was kind of exactly the level of um, of shtick of I would want from this kind of film. You know what I mean? And and the rotations around the the table, the lighting. They did a, a good job. Um, so I appreciate that we finally kind of got into the whole like occult aspect, I guess, or the witchcraft aspect of the witch board. At least they're kind of going there with it. It definitely was needed by this point. I would say. Yeah, it's a fun little scene. And again, it's it's mainly due to the Zarebeth character. She's pleased with herself. She knows she says, Hey, my job's done. She's like, Oh my God, I'm having a vision though. And they're like, what, what, what? She's like, it's a vision of me going home. (laughs) Uh, And she just chuckles. She's like, Oh, it's more psychic humor. So he's uh, Brandon's taken her home. And in the car, she asks him if he's heard of this particular word. And he's like, yeah, it's Portuguese. Why? And she's like, well, what's it mean? And it's, it means someone evil. And she's like, well, was David even Portuguese? And you said he was only 10 years old, right? And Brandon's like, yeah, why? And she's like, because that's a lot of, he was real tough. So he must be taking his vitamins. And then she has another joke. She's like, I see danger ahead. And he's like, for who? And she's like, you, if you miss my house, more psychic humor. uh, He gets to her house, drops her off. She tells him to stay by the phone. I'm going to look into this. If I can come up with anything, I'll I'll call you as soon as I find out what the deal is, because something just doesn't feel right about this whole situation. So she gets into her house. Her house is, you know, decorated with a bunch of creepy paper mache masks and shit. And she opens this book and, you know, reads something. We don't really see what it is, but we do see this like creepy man on the page. And as she goes to make the phone call, someone appears behind her. We don't see who, but she turns around and she's like, oh my God, it's you. And this person proceeds to, through their POV, chase her upstairs. She gets in her bedroom, shuts the door. The person's pounding on the door, trying to get in. uh, And she finally backs away from the door. And all of a sudden the person is apparently in her bedroom. Because whoever it is takes a, is it an axe? Is it, is it the, is it the hammer axe from... 
I think it was either the axe or there was a, a shot uh, of the swords that she had on her wall. So I'm wondering if, if it was that too. But regardless, hits her with it, causes her to fall out the window and land on a sundial piece of decorative art that she had on the ledge of her wall below her window. She lands on that and is impaled. I mean, pretty effective scene. It's This is the other scene that I remember from the film. I enjoy it. I enjoy it. It's it's a little clunky. Like the whole moment where she turns around, she's just like, it's you. And it's like, you know, like it just feels kind of out of nowhere. But, you know, I like her a lot. I like, I really like the little conversation in the car, to be honest, because for a moment she kind of breaks her um, really eccentric character. And she's like asking questions about like, well, you know, was the kid like, how old was the kid? This energy is coming through really strong. Like it's the kind of banter I guess I would anticipate. In this situation, I thought it was very well handled. Um, but this whole moment with her, it just feels a little rushed. I like the character. I wish that we got a little bit, we squeezed a little more juice from her before she was, you know, dispatched. My big issue with the kill, though, is when she runs up to the window, she, she, you know, she locks herself in. It's at the door. It, you know, it seems like it can't come in the room, but then all of a sudden, like, it's in the room. Like, it's not, so, like, it's not like there's even a point where she was safe. And then it launches her from the window and she has her back against the window. And then all of a sudden it cuts to her like being launched out the window. And she's like blatantly like diving out face first. Um, And it's kind of jarring. It really threw me off. It was a little jarring. I know I'm being nitpicky here. I thought it was a good kill. I didn't think it was the best kill, but I enjoyed it. I mean, it's an awkward scene. It's awkwardly edited together. Yeah, I would agree there. Next morning, Brandon is awoken to a wakes up and his TV is playing a news report basically that's saying, Hey, this psychic known as Zarebeth died last night and we're investigating whether it was a murder or a suicide. And he immediately opens his Ouija board box and notices that, that it's missing. So he rushes to Jim's house. And he's like, Hey, we need to talk, but you need to meet me on the landing. So Jim agrees. They go out there and he, Brandon tells Jim that Zarebeth is dead and that th- he thinks that David did it. Of course, Jim does not believe him. He keeps Jim is very hard to convince that that the spirit is real or or responsible for anything. Uh, Brandon says, you know what? You might not believe me, but this is real. And I'm going to go to Big Bear and investigate this myself because that is where David says he died. And I might be able to get some answers. Jim's like, you know what? I don't know. I don't know that I buy any of this, but good luck to you. And they shake hands and it is kind of a a little of a bit of a turning moment in the, in the film in terms of both of their character arcs, because they are now starting to at least show some respect and appreciation for each other. The fact that, you know, uh, Jim tells him good luck. They shake hands, total opposite of how they started out in the film where they were at each other's throat. So it is kind of a turning point. As Jim like watches Brandon leave, he looks out the window and he notices that the detective is parked outside of his house in his car. That detective Dewhurst that just randomly appears. I appreciate that we have some growth between these characters. We do. I, well, and we get even more growth to the point where I thought they were going to start blowing each other here in a few this minutes. But uh, which I, I would have, I would have watched that yeah. any day of the week because yeah. they're both. Well, I mean, they're both handsome enough. And they're both steadfast in their vow to protect Linda, which I do like that that is what kind of brings them back together. This goddamn Linda, though, we find out she does have the fucking Ouija board. She she is causing all of the problems right now. Yes. Yes. She had she she stole she kept the Ouija board. She just returned the case because she's contacting uh, David again. 
and she's trying to contact him, trying to contact him. And all of a sudden the planchette moves and flies across the, the thing by itself. And she screams for Jim. He runs to her rescue, but the door is locked. So he has to kick it down. And as he kicks it down, we are get a scene of her being flung back and forth like a goddamn, I, I don't know what, but her head's her big old hair is flapping in the, as she's being flung back and forth. And then she goes unconscious. And the landlady, of course, the landlady shows up because this nosy broad has to be involved in everything. And he's like, call the ambulance. And he sees the Ouija board and picks it up and opens the window and has perfect aim because he throws it and it lands right in the fucking trash can from the third story of the house. Perfectly yeah. placed. It like, yeah, it like lands strategically into the can. It's very well placed. They, they must have... But like literally had him do that like 10 times though. because the way it lands, it's like, I can't even imagine like getting it just from close up. It's, it, I don't know. It's, it seems so like unbelievable, but whatever. Okay. So this fucking Lieutenant Dewhurst is, is very much a pain in the ass because now, so they go to the hospital with Linda because she was, you know, she has a concussion from being thrown around the room violently um, by the specter. Uh, and so now, you know, Jim is there waiting for her to be released. And this lieutenant's just like sitting there. And okay, I get it, lieutenant. You're, you got a job to do. You got questions to ask. But he's such a fucking dick about it. Cause that like, now he's like juggling. He's like bringing juggling balls. And it seems like very much like he's just mocking Jim. Like, like if I was Jim, I'd be like, go fuck yourself. What, you want to ask me a question? Ask me a fucking question. Don't waste my time while I'm sitting here waiting for my lovely girlfriend to be released from the hospital after a concussion. Like, go fuck yourself. Yeah, he's asking her, did you know, did you know the Zarabath? Blah, blah, blah. And yeah, it's very like, why is he acting so like goofy in this particular moment where he knows that like, we don't know how seriously Linda is hurt, right? He doesn't either. They haven't been told anything. She could be on her deathbed and he is literally juggling in the waiting room, like making light of it. And then he's like, oh, her throat was slit with, and how would you know? Okay. This was another thing. How would he know? Because they haven't found the hat. He's saying her throat was slit with the exact same instrument that cut the ropes at the construction site. You would not know that. I'm sorry. No, that no, that there's no fucking way. But again, it's all to paint the suspicion on Jim where, and it never leads anywhere because now this scene cuts because the doctor comes out and tells Jim that Linda has a concussion, a severe concussion. So it must've been a, a very uh, traumatic fall. And what does Jim say? This is, this kind of shocked me, but I was like, okay, I'm, I'm, I like this little twist. Jim's like, well, what about the baby? And the doctor's like, oh, well, she never followed up to get the test results. So I wasn't able to tell her that she is not pregnant. That fucking bitch. So it adds that layer of, yeah, so now we do know that like the morning sickness and all of this stuff was caused by the Ouija board. At least that's the, you know, the inference we're to make. But I was like, oh, fuck. Okay, she's not pregnant. Good, because these two don't need a kid together, honestly. I'm going to say this, and it, you know, this may be taboo amongst listeners. Fans of, of which board may come for me. But um, up to this point, and really around this area, this is where I started thinking, God, if there is a movie that would do well with a modern day remake, it's this fucking film. Because 
this movie has like it suffers from pacing issues it suffers from lack of budget and there's so many scenes that feel like they just kind of are like half masked <laughs> like like the scene of her i'll give you an example the scene of her being thrown around the room uh when he comes in and he finds her you can tell they're literally like okay tawny katane now when we say action throw yourself around the room and she's just like kind of jumping around um versus like i don't know something you would see in a modern production where you see a person fully like being thrown around a room like i don't know it, it definitely seems like there's certain things they just couldn't pull off on their budget that they would have wanted to have done on a bigger scale if they could have i think that a a remake of this film would do it very well because there are aspects of a cool story in there it just doesn't translate well i think in this specific interpretation of the story um it doesn't really hit all of the time you know what i mean I would agree with you. I think there are definitely elements that could be pulled out of this script and reworked to make it a much more cohesive, effective film. You know, I mean, at least it shows that he did grow, I think, as a as a screenwriter and a director, because Night of the Demons, I don't think has any of the issues that, that I have with this film. So I think he took a couple of years because this came out in 86. Night of the Demons was what, 87. So he he grew, I think, as a screenwriter and a director. And it, it definitely shows with Night of the Demons. But this, yeah, there's just there's really good stuff. There really is in this film. But unfortunately, there's also really, I don't want to say bad stuff, but really like mediocre stuff, elements of the film that really drown out the good elements of it at times. Yeah, it's bogged down by itself so often, whether it be because of the story, um, because of some of the writing, or because simply that there are just some things that they just can't pull off in a way that's genuinely effective. So it looks like kind of hokey. There's a a lot of moments in this that have not aged well and probably didn't even look great when it initially happened. But some of the attempted scares and so forth. Oh, yeah, we're going to talk about stuff not looking well. The, the, the final shots of this film, whew, I don't imagine that that looks good then, let alone now, but we are, we are getting there. Okay. So I do like, again, we get more of Jim's character arc as he goes into her room to, to, to sit next to her as she's unconscious. And this is the first time Roger, we see he actually does start to get teary eyed. So he is, he's definitely developing some emotions and he, his cold, icy demeanor is definitely being broken down. So I think this is the point where you start to really maybe uh, f- sympathize or g- get a little bit more attached to this character because now he, he does seem a lot more relatable and human. I'm here for it. I'm here for him as a man being able to explore his emotions. Yes. Uh, Brandon is rushing out of his house with his overnight bag when he opens the door and who's on his porch. It's Jim. And Jim is like, I am going with you. We are going to get the bottom of this. The first place we better go is the library. So they go to the library and they get on the microfiche and they do find the article about little David dying in a boat explosion. Uh, But there's you know, really no other information. They do get the parents' name and they try to um, call the parents, but there's no listing in the phone book for the parents. So Brandon gets the idea or Jim gets the idea that if they go to the cemetery to David's grave, maybe they can talk to the caretaker and the caretaker will have David's parents' contact information on the um, 
on a like a sheet or whatever the the invoice for his grave. So they go to this fucking creepy ass cemetery. Uh, Jim immediately hops the cement wall and goes in, and uh, Brandon slowly and hesitantly follows. And I do say, probably one of the the more tense scenes in the film. Oh, I, I love this sequence. Well, uh, I know. First, these guys are ballsy as fuck. Even the fact that they're trying to find the parents of David. Like, what are you going to say to these parents when you encounter them? Like, oh, my girlfriend is being harassed by the ghost of your 10-year-old child. Like, I don't like, uh, what are they going to do upon finding these parents? So that's confusing to me. I do appreciate now in the year 2022, all of this could be summed up in a single Google search. Like they're, they're taking a day trip together as gay lovers do. They're visiting a seaside town as gay lovers do. And they're exploring uh, <laughs> local cemeteries as gay lovers do. Um, but no, I mean, it really is one, one of those things like that they put so much effort into this journey. They, they travel away for the day to get all of this information. And nowadays this simply would not have to be the case. But this location that they come upon it is it's worth it because the cemetery is visually one of the most enticing locations that we see over the course of the film it is like it's like a bog there's so much fog in this fucking cemetery and it's very effective it's uh, silhouettes of tombstones and it looks like something straight out of silent hill i mean it looks really fucking good it is a nice visually it's a nice departure from the bland like interior apartments settings that we've gotten so far but i also like that he can't find uh jim right away and there's this moment where he's in the middle of the cemetery you can tell he's shit-faced scared based on the expression on his face and he hears like a crunch behind him and we as the audience don't know what to expect and he like he looks fucking terrified and he slowly with his flashlight turns around behind him to reveal nothing but then Jim comes in front of him and grabs him. And it's kind of a really effective little jump scare. Brandon is definitely the bottom in this relationship by now as well. Like, let's just be clear. Definitely the bottom. Oh, yeah, yeah. He d- <laughs> Well, maybe they're verse. Who knows? Jim uh, says, hey, I found David's parents' graves. And they happened to die on the same day David did. But they only died two weeks ago. And he's like, what do you think that means? And then we cut to the scene in the motel room where the two are shirtless and Jim doesn't have a toothbrush. He's like, hey, do you have an extra toothbrush I can borrow? Coming up on the scene, you get a you get a shot of the hotel that literally just says the Wishing Well Motel has phones. And like that's all it has, has phones. phones. And I I'll take it. I mean, if that's all I get, <laughs> I'll take it. But um yeah, this is this is the scene, guys, that we've been building up to. I think gay people, you'll know why uh, if you've seen this movie before. Uh, this truly is the setup for a gay porn. I've seen it before, time and time again. I have watched these porn clips. It is so ripe for a moment in which Brandon just turns around and bends over and and presents himself to Jim. If only they would have gone there, because <laughs> the chemistry it's palpable. Yes, they they bond. They bond. They're they're Jim is being very forthright with the fact that you know what I did not steal her from you, and Brandon's like, yeah, I know, I know, and and Jim's like, what happened to us? We used to be so close, <laughs> and Brandon's response is, well, people change. They don't always do the things they did when they were younger, 
he's like, you know what, Jim, I have to admit to you, it drives me crazy to see you and Linda together. And it's all very like, okay, does it drive you crazy because you want Jim or (laughs) what's the deal here? And Jim's like, you're right. I should get out of Linda's life. (laughs) And then he's like, what, what does Linda have or what does Linda see in you that she didn't see in me? And Jim's like, I make her laugh. And Brandon says, well, I made her laugh too. And then Jim makes the joke. Oh, but we're not talking about in bed. That right there. That is exactly the moment (laughs) when I thought that Brandon was going to start sucking Jim's dick. Like I was like, it's coming. Oh yeah. I thought, I thought, okay, Jim's going to whip his dick out and we're going to get some good oral action. But unfortunately it doesn't happen, but it is very just, yeah. I mean, a lot of homoerotic undertones, I think, but I, I do like the scene. So now they're buddy buddies. Yeah. It's a tender moment between two men with chests exposed for forging friendship and forgetting past issues and falling in love. Furry chests exposed. <laughs> I know. We get a scene with Linda waking up in the hospital and she hears a, a child calling her name. She wanders out into the hallway We get a jump scare where she sees her reflection in the glass. But then as she turns around, there's the guy with the ax and he chops her head off. It looks so ridiculous. But I love it. Like, this is the kind of ridiculous, like, give me more. It's so corny. Yeah, but she wakes up and it's just a dream, obviously. How many times am I going to see fucking Tawny Katane in a flowing robe in this movie? Like, literally, that should be a drinking game. Every time that you see Tawny Katane in a flowing fucking robe it's so exaggerated but i love it i think it was half the budget of the movie was her wardrobe because she's oh, in a different she's robes. she's in a different outfit every time you see her so jim brought a different ouija board with him apparently and they set it up at the dock where david supposedly died um and they're like we're gonna get to the bottom of this We're going to find out why exactly David is terrorizing Linda, but we need to do it quickly because she can't be awake because as long as she's sedated, you know, he's not going to be able to get to her. So we have to do this really quick. They do not know because it cuts to her basically wide awake, looking great, checking herself out of the hospital. (laughs) Oh yeah. He's like, he says, he's like, isn't she under sedation? He's like, yep, sure, sure is. And then it cuts over and she's like checking herself <laughs> out. And the doctor's like, I really think you should stay for more tests. And Tawny Katane is like, absolutely fucking not. I'm getting out of here. So they use the Ouija board and, you know, uh, Bran is like, who is, who's terrorizing Linda? And he keeps spelling out evil, evil. And Brandon's like, you tell me the truth, David. Did you kill Lloyd and Zarabeth? And it says no. And he's like, well, who did then? And he's like, it spells out evil again. They're like, well, where is this evil at? And it keeps spelling out her, H-E-R. And they're like, what do you mean her? Are you talking about uh, Linda? And it's like, no. So they're like, where is it at? And it spells out her again. And then they lose contact with the spirit. And Jim is like, hey, didn't you say that they, they're terrible at spelling sometimes? And Brandon's like, yeah. And he's like, ah, it means here, here. And then all of a sudden, these barrels fall on top of them and knock them into the fucking lake. I do love that leading up to this, these boys are having this chat with David at this lovely seaside setting. No wonder the fog was so uh, thick the night before because they're right in a harbor. So, I mean, like, I guess that makes sense why they were in the middle of a fucking, like, fog 
storm. this whole moment, I actually really thought this was kind of a cool buildup. Like the whole thing, like here, oh, he's trying to say here. And then instantly the ropes break and all these barrels come rolling at them. And I thought it was like a, a pretty cool sequence. Um, it builds in a way I did not expect. I'll say that much. Oh, it does. This kind of surprised me because a few moments pass. We see that Jim is totally unconscious on the deck. Brandon crawls out of the lake and gets on the dock and he's walking over to Jim and here's something and he turns around and immediately has that fucking hatchet embedded in his face i was a little shocked by this to be honest because I mean, it comes out, it of, comes out nowhere. of nowhere and this is like a lead character that we have followed through the entire film that is the character that has taken charge of going and finding out exactly what is going on with this entire ordeal and he, literally offed with a fucking hatchet to the face yeah and like you don't even know that the hatchet is like in the vicinity like it's not like it cuts to the hatchet like it just cuts to that weird pov shot of the specter moving in on him and all of a sudden a hatchet just gets gets launched into his forehead and he's dead and it's over so yeah it, it's it's abrupt it's a very abrupt kill and unanticipated unexpected but i guess it's part of the, the shock factor so i'll take it definitely i give it kudos for for going there because uh, when Jim wakes up, he is obviously he's dazed, so he he gets into the water to wash his bloody face off. When all of a sudden, a hand comes out of the water and grabs him, and he pulls the body out and realizes that it's Brandon. And we see Brandon, you know, with the gash in his face. And this is when Jim pulls Brandon out of the water and literally hugs him tightly and cries, pretty excessively aggressively he's like lets out a howl and is just crying so this is again this the the evolution of this gym character being able to express his emotions i have some questions about this sequence my first question is for jim jim why would you wash your face in that disgusting lake water you're gonna get gangrene he's what he's washing the wound the blood off of his face right right there in the lake just pouring that nasty-ass water all over his face. So I think that's a bad decision on his part. Um, my other question, as he's washing himself, the hand in the water blatantly comes out and grabs him. Like, it grabs him as though it were a living hand. But when he reaches into the water and he finds the body of Brandon, Brandon is clearly deceased. Like, I think he's probably been dead for a hot minute ever since that axe hit him in the forehead which I'm assuming is a while ago because, you know, Jim's been passed out on the fucking dock. So how, tell me how did that hand manage to clutch onto Jim's shirt? I had the same question and you know what? I just rolled with it. I don't know. I I honestly don't know. It makes zero sense because yeah, when he does pull Jim out of the, out of the water, it is obvious that the dude is dead. And has been dead for a while because the, the face, the, the skin on his face is is very pale now. That gash, I mean, you're not going to survive that gash. It's, it was deep all the way across his face. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. But it did. Yeah. This leads to another very lovely shot. There are some really pretty shots in this movie, uh, especially when you see the fluidity of some of those POV shots like this one. Uh, it comes upon Linda in that goddamn fucking silken robe flowing billowing as though she's bell in the beast's west wing as she uh ascends the staircase and enters the house and the the camera does this beautiful sweep up to her window where you see her enter the the 
the room and going to the bathroom. And I just think some of these shots are surprisingly effective, considering that there are a lot of other shots in this movie that do feel very flat. She, again, she tries to get, she gets the Ouija board out of the trash can, I think, right? Isn't that what she does? And so she tries to contact David again and he doesn't answer her. Uh, and then we cut to some random scene with, is with Jim in a, what is it supposed to be like an occult shop or something? Uh, I have no idea what's going on here, but this sultry vixen <laughs> given Jim sage advice without any introduction or explanation whatsoever. She's given him key points about like the backstory of who we learned the villain to be this Carlos Malfighter or whatever his last name is. Malfighter. Malfighter, I think. Yeah. He, Mal- we find out that he was a notorious mass murderer who killed nine people with an ax and lived in the goddamn house that they're living in now. And like, you get this key piece of information from this random damsel this broad in this sexy red outfit looking all very looking hot i mean she's looking good but she comes fucking out of nowhere and i wanted more about her what is she supposed to be i think she runs like an occult store but i needed that introduction like why why would you give me what i find to be this very important information on this random woman who i've never seen before I, I don't know, but this is, yeah, we find out all of the information about the killer from her and Jim immediately goes to a payphone, calls the hospital to ask for Linda and he finds out that she has checked herself out. So we cut back to her in the apartment taking a shower and she basically gets locked in the shower when the hot scolding water comes on and starts scolding her and she has to grab a towel and bust the shower door with it and and get out that way. but. I mean, and we get some tawny, we get Tawny Katane butt ass naked, full frontal, full bush, full bush. I mean, she's getting out of that shower with her, just spreading her legs, climbing over that glass. And I was like, <laughs> that is definitely Tawny Katane's vagina. Think of all of the horny teenage boys at that time who are like, oh, we got to get which board. You'll see Tawny Katane's vagina. Like, <laughs> I'm sure people were pumped about this back in the day, back when she was rifling on top of cars and dancing in smoke and all those things. I'm surprised they didn't have her dance in this movie. Like it's, you could, you know, they could have fed it into one of those dream sequences, her just dancing around spinning in a dress. Oh, I would have loved to seen that. I mean, that should have been the whole climax of the movie. (laughs) That should have been like the final credits. It's just her and the demon dancing. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So she runs out of the bathroom, runs into her bedroom, but the bedroom door slams shut and locks her in and she can't get out. So she's frantically, you know, trying to figure out what she's going to do when she sees the Ouija board that's on the bed now. And she backs away and screams and turns around. And we see the face of Malfador, the, the intimidating looking fellow. And she screams. We get one of those again, cut to the exterior of the, the house and we hear her scream. Oh, it's a bad scream too. It's real bad. Like this is the worst scream in the movie. It doesn't even sound like Tawny fucking Katane. Apparently some time passes. I don't know if it's supposed to be the next day or later that day, but Jim gets home and rushes into the apartment and the apartment has literally been ransacked. I mean, the wallpaper is ripped. Looks like it was ripped with claws. Everything's overturned. It's just a, uh, it's just in disarray when all of a sudden she fucking Tawny Katane comes out of nowhere with a fucking ax Wearing a sensible suit and top hat. <laughs> She's wearing a goddamn fucking fedora. I'm like, listen, 
is this like the killer style? He's like, now that I've taken over Tawny Katane, I'm going to take out her boyfriend in style, wearing a fedora. Like, it really is so unexpected, and it makes her so much less intimidating. Like, Tawny Katane, I don't look at Tawny Katane and think intimidation factor to begin with. The hair is wild, so why would you restrain the hair under that fucking fancy fedora? It just seems like a weird choice. It looks like she's dressed up to, again, do a music video. It, it's not what I would anticipate for the final sequence. Like, make her look crazy. Make her hair all big. Shred her clothes. <laughs> make her naked. Just have her be butt-ass naked with an axe. Anything else. But this was like, this seems so fucking weird. It was, the I think, the worst choice they could have made. It was a very awkward. Yeah, I use that word again. But yeah, this whole get up just does not land but she is now possessed by this malfador guy and she is like beating the shit out of jim and she, to the fact where she gets like on top of him and starts choking him and he is able to get a, a letter opener that's laying on the floor next to him and he's getting ready to stab her and the person now is talking through malfador's voice and he's like what are you waiting for jim do it thankfully that fucking hat comes off real fast though troy that the hat does come off and the hair is just like red as a fire engine getting getting bigger and bigger bigger and she is i gotta say it's got to be the dancer background but when it comes to the physicality of the fighting she actually does quite a good job she's oh, really yeah. into it and it's her she's on his back spinning around i mean the fight goes on for a second she's trying to sell it the best she can she's doing a good job here i even like i even think that she does a good job with this particular exchange that they have you know her facial expressions and everything she's talking through a different voice but basically he says i love you linda and then she has this moment where she like comes to and she's like uh, jim he's like oh and then she the, the demon comes back and like slams his head on the floor and it's like it's not that easy jim and basically starts to launch into the fact that jim i thought you were smart you realize that you are the one that puts a portal the whole time, not Linda. And that's why I have been terrorizing you by terrorizing Linda and killing your friend. A shocking twist. A shocking twist. And it starts to choke him again. So he does shove the letter opener into her thigh. At the same time, who the fuck shows up out of nowhere? God damn it. That fucking uh, Lieutenant... Whatever his name is, he's so not memorable, his name does not stick with me, that obnoxious lieutenant shows up and causes all kinds of problems and mischief. Luckily, though, he shows up and he's like pulls the gun on David, or on Jim, and it's like, I'm going to shoot you, you pause right there, what have you done? And he asks, are you okay, Miss, whatever her last name, Linda? And she gets up and whaps him with the fucking fireplace poker. And he has the most ridiculous reaction. Like he stumbles backwards and then like falls on the floor and is like incapacitated the rest of the movie. And literally all she did was like hit him in the chest with this fireplace poker. I do like though that like at this point, she just boldly makes it clear that she is not Linda. Like now the Lieutenant has to be aware that things are not as he suspected and that Jim is not like, at fault because she is no holds bars, you know, just fully possessed at this point. And, you know, without even hesitation, takes the lieutenant out with the fire, with the fire poker. He's down, but he's not killed. He's like on the floor and he's watching everything unfold. So like, clearly this, this cop is going to see that this broad is possessed by a demon. Like there's no way you can deny it, you know? Yeah. And now we get this final standoff because Jim gets the gun. 
and pulls it on her. And there's this like tense moment where they have more exchanges and she's like, you, I'm going to have Linda forever unless you, unless you are out of the picture. So like encouraging him to kill himself. And he does take the gun, put it to his forehead. And, you know, all of a sudden as he's standing there, it seems like Linda comes too because she screams. She's like, Jim, don't. And we hear the gunshot. So we are a little bit, you know, taken aback because we think he actually shot himself. But no, what does he do instead? He shoots the Ouija board a bunch of times. The Ouija board, which is now currently floating in the air. Yes. Via yes. horrible so, green screen and starts rotating, spinning in circles. As he's shooting it, yes. And everyone's like watching in disbelief. And she launches herself at him. And he falls out the second story window in what has to be one of the worst falling effects I've ever seen in my entire life. We've seen this exact same effect done way better. Like where it's like from the perspective of the person who's falling, this has been masterfully like enhanced upon in, in movies to follow. This I would say is probably a very early example of someone trying to do like an artistic green screen fall where the actor is going backwards out the window, you know, and, and they're clearly trying to do something very, uh, unique and kind of an artsy take on the, the, the fall out the window. And it just doesn't work. The green screen is a little off. Um, but I, I applaud them for trying. I think my biggest issue, my biggest gripe with this finale is more of just like how things just end up going exactly how they need to go to wrap up the story. Like for a moment, she's able to break free and say, no, Jim, don't. Um, and then she's possessed again. And, you know, she takes him out the window and, he goes out and then it cuts like it, you don't know what happens, but it, like, I don't really understand like what triggered the series of events that occurred. Like what was the motive motivating factor behind everything? Um, it feels like it's a finale just for it to be a finale and like wrap up the story. And that's all. The problem is like, nothing is really, nothing's really elaborated on. Like we don't really find out a lot about this particular villain, this Malfador guy, or what is his real intentions just besides possessing Linda or, or what this whole portal means. It's just, it's wrapped up with, with a lot of loose ends, I think. And then, yeah, Jim falls out of the window and it's a, it's very much implied that he lands on a car hood. And I do like the little, uh, kind of what's the word that they do. They pull like a little, um, bait and switch because it immediately cuts to people crying in church. Yeah, I don't know about you, but I I thought it was his funeral, right? Yeah. But it's not. It's it's their wedding and he is in a neck brace. But then this doesn't make any sense. Did okay, did you think the same thing? Okay, so we see their wedding. But then the very next scene is the landlady cleaning up the apartment that had been destroyed. So what did they do? Did they get married that very day? It makes absolutely no fucking sense. And if anything, how dare they leave all of that work for that landlady? Like, I mean, I don't care if you were possessed when you did it or not. Like, you are responsible for cleaning that house. Um, also, how did you manage to arrange this wedding so quickly? Like, obviously, it wasn't in the works to begin with. He just managed to say, I love you. Literally, you know, minutes ago. So now all of a sudden you're having a fucking wedding. I think you guys need to really figure things out. You just got through a quite a traumatic experience fighting a demonic force through a Ouija board. And now you're getting married. That seems like a rush decision. So yeah, this time frame doesn't make any sense. But one of the biggest issues of this movie, I would say, is the pacing in the sense like, I don't know. I could not tell you 
if this movie took place over the matter of a couple of days or maybe several months. Like the way it's paced is so weird. And there's like weird time lapses, points where it just cuts away from things and you just don't know like where it left off. I really don't know like how long we've been getting to know these characters, you know? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I just, I, it just bears repeating because I'm telling you, Roger, it really took me aback that they, they cut to a wedding scene, but then after the wedding scene is the landlady cleaning up the apartment. I, it just makes zero sense time-wise. Yeah, it, it really I, does. It, it, I, it's very confusing. And okay, so he, you're trying to tell me he fell out of a three-story window, landed back on a fucking hood of a car, and all he has is a neck brace on. Okay, I'll, whatever. I'll buy it. I will buy it for the simple fact that we do now get this broad, this toothy, homely broad. You know who I'm talking about, Oh, right? the, the horse face girl. <laughs> yes. Uh, who, who's in the apartment with the landlady who finds the, the Ouija board and is like, look what I found. Do you think it still works? And the landlady is like, oh, my God, a Ouija board. I haven't seen one of those since I was a kid. And the lady, the, the the horsey looking girl with her big old fucking buck teeth is like, I didn't know they, they've been around that long. <laughs> and they toss it in a garbage box. And uh, the close up, we get a close up of it. And the ending shot is a push in on the Ouija board and on the word yes. And all of a sudden the planchette flies up to the word yes. I do like that. I, I do. I do like I do. that. I mean, it was. Ex- I mean, I knew what they were going to do when it started to do that push in, but um, yeah, and that's that's witchboard. That's the end. I just can't believe they left that poor fucking landlady to do all that work and chose to go get married instead. It's it's very confusing to me. That's insulting. If anything, to that poor landlady, how dare they? And that horsey faced girl. I mean, who the, who was that? Was that her granddaughter? I'm assuming. I'm guessing so. If she's in the sequel, I have severely less interest watching her versus one Tawny Katane, who was the only thing that really got me through the whole process of the movie was that big redhead. There is a sequel, too. Have you seen the sequel? Uh, No, I have not. (laughs) (laughs) No, this is definitely a movie that I think I know exactly what the sequel is going to be like. It's going to be very Skinamax. There's something about this movie that feels very Skinamax. Like, again, I think it's just it's a smaller budget overall. It feels very kind of blasé in certain areas. I, you know, knowing that Night of the Demons was his next offering, it's definitely a, a huge sign of growth and style and flair because this movie really kind of lacks style. Uh, I think thus the flatness. And, and there's definitely a huge element of growth and in stepping into the next film, which is nothing but style and character and personality and, and um, the visuals in, in Night of the Demons just hugely surpassed this. Oh, Night of the Demons is a far superior film. He he greatly improved, like I said, his filmmaking uh, techniques and his, his screenwriting. I've never seen the sequel either, but he directed that as well. And it came out in 93. So quite a quite a bit after this particular one. And it has one Amy Dolenz in it from um, Can't Buy Me Love. She was on a bunch of 80s rom-coms and shit so and actually oh my god there's a third one too good lord so apparently this is a quite the little franchise that i did not wasn't aware of now again i don't i i just want to i don't hate this movie it has a lot of it's fun um it does have a few memorable scenes it's just like i i don't think the i don't think the ending did the build up any favors at all 
it's like you said, it's very rushed. No, we don't learn much about the villain at all. I mean, throughout the entire movie, we are led to believe that the villain of the film is this David spirit. And it's not revealed until like the last 10 minutes of the film. And again, like you said, by some random character that, oh no, it's this notorious serial killer that we've never heard about before. It's just very, it's to me, it was just very sloppy storytelling. Uh, it could have been tightened up quite a bit. It's like the script really needed a couple of people to come in and before it got transferred to film to really come in and revise it, tighten it up, add a little bit more um, story where needed, and then take out a, a bunch of the just confusing non-essential elements, such as and every scene, in, uh, including that damn detective. Oh, yeah. But again, it's not the worst we've seen. I had fun with it. Yeah, so we got to thank get big a big thanks to Julie Brock for suggesting this. I, again, I'm glad I got to check it out. It really is interesting knowing that the director went on to direct what I find to be almost a masterpiece of horror cinema from the '80s. Just a year later, yeah, I you know I um I have I had a good time watching it, and I think that's all that really matters in this case. Like, it's definitely not a movie that I walk away and feel uh, heavily impacted. You know, it's not like I'm going to be two weeks from now thinking, hmm, which board is on my mind? Uh, <laughs> I'm really thinking into all of the, uh, everything that, you know, makes this movie work. There's not a lot to it. It's it's really simple at its core, and it's very basic, and it doesn't demand a lot of thinking, which, hey, I can appreciate that. Uh, it was fun, but I, I stand by what I said earlier regarding that I the fact that I think that this would be actually a title that would do well with a, with a proper remake. A good remake, a remake that maybe allowed it to um, smooth out some of the bumps, some of the hiccups from what you, you know, what we've said. Uh, it really did need another draft, I think, or two or three uh, to really tighten up some of these loose ends, make it feel more cohesive and make it feel like there's just more um, more at stake in general, because the scare factor is very minimal and everything having to do with Linda being taken over by this force really doesn't seem all that threatening. And then by the time you get to the end, she doesn't seem that threatening. So when the, the, the negative force, you know, the antagonist, the, the evil in the film doesn't seem like it has that much of an impact. I mean, what is there to really care about, I guess, you know? No, I, I totally agree. I totally agree. Uh, you know, it's, it's a fun little popcorn flick, but yeah, it, it does have its issues. So, yeah, Witchboard. So, guys, let us know your thoughts on this film. I think it's definitely um, one I hear brought up occasionally, but, you know, considering it came out smack, smack dab in the 80s, kind of in the middle of the slasher boom, it's one you really don't hear get talked about a lot or brought up a lot. I mean, considering all things considering, considering who directed it, who stars in it, I would think it would be a little bit more of a popular title. But, uh, yeah, so let us know your thoughts on Witchboard, and you know, and uh, until next week when we have a very special episode, Roger. Do you want to reveal that real quick? Yeah, oh, absolutely. I'm very excited. Next week we're having a guest. It's a guest. It's a guest. Um, and we're you know we're having a lady. It's been a minute, a hot minute since we've had some estrogen on the show. Um, and I think it's needed, and it's it's due time. And and I'm very excited that my friend Hope Madden. Um, a filmmaker who recently wrapped production on her uh, feature film, Obstacle Corpse, 
which I was lucky enough to be on set for a couple of days and watch her do her thing and make her magic and had a, a great time. And I really want to have her on uh, the show just because, uh, you know, it'll be nice to get a woman's perspective on a classic horror title. And the title she chose has me extra excited because, you know, I feel this is a movie that oftentimes um, some of the female characters in it uh, have been looked at as kind of like damsels in distress. But I really... I love the final girl from this film. I stand by her. Sally Hardesty will always have my heart. We're covering the original Texas Chainsaw Massacre with a woman's perspective. And I'm really excited to, to hear that and to chat about that. Yeah, that's going to be a great one. Considering we've we've covered the remake and we just recently covered part four, I'm really excited to dive into the original source material because, you know, I think it is, you know, it's such a, a landmark film, such an influential influential film in the landscape of horror. And, you know, it, it's it'll be really interesting just to dive into it and be able to discuss, you know, what makes the film so iconic and influential. And yeah, definitely get a female perspective you know, because it is such a, I don't know, gritty, uh, yeah, just downright effective, terrifying film. Unfortunately, you know, the, the franchise I think is probably one of the more problematic, weaker horror franchises, franchises out there, but there's no denying the power of the original. So we are super excited guys. So join us, you know, next week with the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Toby Hooper's masterpiece. And again, let us know your thoughts on Witchboard. Yes, let us know. And I must end this on a somber note. Rest in peace, Tawny Katane. I mean, at least we have Witchboard to remember her, uh, her magic, her beauty, and her splendor. Taken way too soon. Way too soon. Oh, yeah, absolutely. All right, guys. With that, good night. <laughs> <laughs>